Father in heaven, thank you for allowing us to be able to start a new year of Sunday school. We pray that you be with our Sunday school teachers as they teach our little ones, help our little ones to continue to grow in knowledge and even in wisdom, Father, regarding the things of the Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you be with those who are entrusted for this uh, academic year to uh, train them and equip them with knowledge of your word. Father, for us here in the adult class, we pray that as we continue going to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, help us to be able to see and to learn that you have this one program, this one uh, glorious story of redemption all throughout your scripture. Help us to be able to see how everything coheres together and how everything that we need for faith and life is found in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks, we are back to Sunday school after our summer break. And as you know, we were going through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we're going to continue to do so. Uh, So uh, again, I'm going to invite you to turn to that. And if you don't have your own personal copy, or if you haven't memorized it yet, for shame, okay, Uh, you can find it in, of course, in your hymnal in the back. Uh, And I always forget something like what, page 860-ish? Something along the nature? Eight? 70. Okay, we're looking at question 29, so let's get there. And before we read it, let's remember what we've said before about the confession and the catechisms. Uh, These are the standards of our denomination, uh, but they are not the equal of Scripture. What are they? They are simply summaries of what the Scripture teaches. When somebody asks, what is it that you believe Scripture says about man, what the Scripture says about God, what the Scripture says about salvation, or whatever other topic, and you tell them, all we've done in the confessions and in the catechisms is written it down so that you have a summary of what those beliefs are. The confession lays those out in paragraph form. The catechisms lay these out in a simpler question and answer format that's actually meant for learning, for memorizing, for teaching and training kids. Shorter catechism was intended for children. The larger catechism is intended for adults. Okay, so with that behind us, uh, here we are, question 29. What have we looked at so far? Well, we looked at the fact that the scripture really is God's word. We looked at the nature of God, right? Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Those three persons are equally God, equal in power and glory and so on. And then we've looked at the, the fact that God created us. And after he created us, he enters into what we would call providence. So we saw God's acts of creation and then his acts of providence, which are his superintending and controlling uh, what he has created. We spent some time talking about the fact that he created us and he created us in knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. Then how sin entered into the world through our disobedience and how the world then, as a result, we've uh, entered into the fall and how we lost that knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, how we entered into um, a, a, a state, or as they use the old language, estate of sin and misery. And then we looked at how God determined to not leave us in that estate, but determined that he would save us. And we began to look at the idea of covenants. We saw that covenant of works that God made with Adam, requiring perfect obedience, and then the covenant of grace in which Jesus fulfills the demands of the covenant of works in our place. So where we left off last time was looking at two things. The last few things that we were looking at was the person 
and work of Jesus, and I'm going to just use this as a summary to lead into where we're about to read in question 29. The person of Jesus, who he is, and what do we see? We see that Jesus is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. We saw that, yes, he is fully human, but he's also fully God. He's one person, and he possesses those two natures, and those two natures are are perfectly each, you know, part of one is perfectly human, one is perfectly God. There's no mixing, there's no you know, uh, superintending one over the other. Um, there's no um, absorbing one of the other. So God, uh, so Jesus is fully man and fully God. So we saw his person, and then we saw his work. That is, who he is. Now we talked about what he does. And we saw that he is prophet, priest, and king, and, and in so doing, he then uh, redeems us. As our prophet, he reveals God to us, <clears throat> not just in the fact that what he said made him God, uh, uh, what he said made it the word, but that he himself is the word. His very being is revelation of God. Then as priest, we saw that he not only intercedes for us as the perfect mediator between God and man, perfectly God, he can represent God to us, perfectly man, he can represent man to God, but that he also died in our place as a sacrifice. And we saw that he is our king. He rules over all things. He rules over our hearts. He's conquered us and so on. So those are the things that we saw before. And that then leads us to our question, question 29. But before I do that, you've had three months to be chewing and, you know, on all these things. Any questions about anything I said to just set the table before we jump into 29? Here, we flip the page and we come to a new section of the catechism. Up until now, when we were describing what God, what Jesus has done, We've been talking about redemption. I'm going to put that down here because we talked about his person and his work. But now you might say all that, actually I guess I could put that here. All that is redemption accomplished. What God did through Christ, this part here, is redemption accomplished. In other words, on the cross, Jesus really did accomplish our redemption. He really did pay the penalty for our sins. He really did purchase for us the right to become, as John says in the beginning of John chapter one, uh, the right to become sons and daughters of God and so on. It really is accomplished. He didn't uh, die for the possibility that you might want to, you know, he really accomplished it. However, the key word here. That redemption which Christ purchased for us, we're made partakers of it. That means you actually grab a hold of it by the effectual application of it to us by the Holy Spirit. So we speak about redemption accomplished, but we also can speak, and that's what we're going to be doing here from this point on, redemption applied. You might say, well, what's the difference? And it's simply this. Jesus accomplishes the redemption on the cross 2,000 years ago. You weren't around 2,000 years ago. So at some point in history, the Holy Spirit comes, and that's the answer here, by his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and takes that redemption which Jesus applied and he applied, which Jesus purchased or accomplished, and he applies it to us in that particular moment and time. 
We're going to talk about how he does it, and the rest of the catechism questions for the next this whole section are going to do that step by step. But the thing that we see here is that the Holy Spirit comes in one particular moment. Now, you might say, how does that work? We are going to look at it in much more detail. So I'm going to do a little bit of racing. I'm going to get rid of the person and work part, which was review. So if we got our timeline here of all of history, we got the cross, and we have the Old Testament and New Testament. Jesus accomplishes salvation for us in his life, death, and resurrection, right? And then you come somewhere around here, and here comes the Holy Spirit, and he applies that redemption to you because of what Jesus did, right? What if you're an Old Testament believer? Is it any different? Nope, not at all. The Holy Spirit applies what Jesus did. Then you say, wait a minute, but Jesus hasn't done it yet, <laughs> right? So how can he apply it? Easy enough. God already knows that Jesus is good for it. Have you ever purchased something with a credit card? Ladies? I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Right, if you've ever purchased anything with a credit card, what are you doing? You're doing something at this moment because the company that's issuing the money trusts that you will pay for it. They know that you're good for it, ideally, right? And then you pay them. In essence, the Father has no problem sending the Spirit to apply salvation to Abraham because he knows that Jesus will, not only does he know, remember God superintends all things, he's determined that that's what is going to happen. Does that make sense? Okay. So this is the issue of redemption accomplished, redemption applied. And we're going to, like I said, we're going to fold, unfold over the next few weeks what the applied part does. But I want to make some comments in general today about it that I think will be helpful. And that is that when you look at it, it says that it is the Holy Spirit that applies our redemption. And I think this is a very important important point to look at because when you look at it, you see then that salvation is really something that all three persons of the Trinity are involved with. And what we're going to spend a moment is looking at different ways that uh, Christians or those who claim to be Christians have looked at salvation and have either understood this point or have failed to understand this point about the fact that all three persons are involved. So what does the Father do in salvation? Anybody want to take a wag at that? Certainly gives his son. I will go one step before that even. And oh, I like that. He engineered it, right? He elects. He chooses. He predetermines. So the Father is the one who sets the whole thing in motion in terms of his election and so on. And as part of that, yes, sending the Son. What does the Son do? And this is the one that most people get. Now, this blue pen is shot. And the Son? Say again? In part, gets punished. So he actually goes and he accomplishes, as we were just saying a moment ago, redemption. And that's a two-parter. The getting punished part, uh, which we talk about, where he pays the penalty for our sin, that gets us from negative red, right, infinite debt, to zero. But then he also lives the perfect life that we're supposed to be living. 
and that righteousness becomes ours, right? And so he takes us from zero to infinite merit, which is where we need to be as an obedient people. So he actually accomplishes that redemption for us um, through his work. And then the Holy Spirit... Sure, and that's his ongoing work, uh, absolutely. Yep, no, no doubt. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit applies that redemption, which is what we're going to be looking at here, like I said, in a little bit more detail in the weeks to come. So all three persons are involved. And you might say, the, some people say the Father predestines, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies that redemption. Sorry, that doesn't all work out in A's. That would be fine if we could come up with a way of saying, a, how about he authors? Ooh, ooh. It's not technically true. I, all, all three persons are involved, not just in the doing, but in the desire. So, but the Father does elect, and the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies. Okay. Now, over the course of church history, there has been greater or lesser understanding of that. And that's led to different things. So, for example, if you look at what in the last century was known as modernism. Modernism today, we would just say, is liberal theology that the mainline churches have held to, all the churches that have kind of left evangelical belief behind. It's, it's what, the evangelical movement of the, of the late 40s and 50s. Uh, by the way, you may not know that. When we talk about evangelicals and non-denominational churches and Bible churches and all that kind of stuff, virtually all those did not exist prior to World War II. Um, in fact, I shouldn't say none of them existed prior to World War II. Uh, you had some denominations that we would consider evangelical today that were already around, um, and that might be, let's say, Southern Baptist Assembly of God. I'm just giving you some examples. Uh, but even then, it's not as simple as all that. So evangelicalism, as it exists, is really a post-World War II phenomenon because of modernism. Modernism began in the 1910s and has its roots in the 1870s, but it began in the churches around 1910. And has continued and has morphed through liberal theology today that's now into, you know, transgenderism and this and that and all that. But it all kind of comes out of that time period. But the, the thing about modernism is that in many respects, it shares things that have happened all throughout church history. So, for example, in early church history... Let's see if the green works better. You had a view that green doesn't work at all. Okay. You had a view called Pelagianism, named after a guy called Pelagius. Let me just write these out for now. So Sinianism, that's during the time of the Reformation, from a guy, frankly, two, um, two guys, I don't remember their first names, they were Italian, so Zini was the name, one was the uncle, the other one was the uh, nephew, that's during the Reformation, so early church history, ancient church history, this is about um, AD 400, this is about 1550s, 60s, Unitarianism is the one that's been with us since the 1800s. 
and continues to today. And then the modern version, (laughs) modernism, hence the name. What do they all have in common? Well, they're all different in some ways. But the one thing they all have in common is that they deny Father, Son, and Spirit being involved in redemption to some degree, uh, some greater or lesser degree. Pelagius taught that you did not need to be saved through God. You could save yourself. Augustine answered that very clearly and put him down, and that for the most part has not been an issue in the Christian church. So Sinianism, amongst its many issues, with whether Jesus was really divine and all this other kind of stuff, which they had issues with, also did not teach, and especially did not teach the work of uh, the Son or the Spirit. Unitarianism, that you might be familiar with if you spent any amount of time in New England uh, or that part of the world, was deeply affected by Socinianism. In fact, it's just really, you might say, a new manifestation of it. You can tell by the name Unitarianism, they believe in God, but they don't believe in three persons. They believe that God takes on different roles, so that the same God, well, this is still the same God, but the, the one person just pretends, you know, he puts on different hats. At one moment, he acts like the Father, so we call him Father. So it denies the, uh, the three-person aspect of the Trinity. But also is the fact that they, again, believe that you save yourself by what it is that you do. And modernism teaches very much the same thing. And we're going to be looking at that in a little bit of detail here uh, in just a moment. Basically, in one way or the other, even when they talk about God, they'll often talk about cooperation with God and your salvation. And in the end, the power to save yourself resides in you. You have to be able to exercise something in order to save yourself. So that's a pretty common... um, thread that runs really throughout church history. The reason for that is because in the end we always go back in some way or fashion to looking at ourselves as the ones who are able to accomplish our own redemption. So it should not surprise us that throughout church history there are different manifestations of that. I'm not going to spend too much time with these guys. I do want to talk about one that you might be familiar with that came out right after the Reformation. It would be right around here in about, oh, that's right, this one's dead. I'm putting it here, so get it out of the way. There we go. So coming out of the Reformation, about 70 years later, there's another view that comes around 1610, actually, it's just 1600. That's just rounded off. Some of you will be familiar with this term. Anybody know what that is? Arminianism? Ever heard of that? Yeah. Arminianism is the view that is most prevalent in the evangelical church today. I would probably say that outside of Reformed folks, it is in every other church that would claim to be Bible-believing. It's based on a guy called Jacob Arminus, who um, actually died, I think, right around this time, 1609 or something like that. And what he basically taught was Yes, he believed in the work of the Father and Son and Spirit. Uh, Yes, he believed that you needed uh, God to be saved. You needed the work of Christ. 
But in his view, man cooperates with God. And if you grew up in any Baptist church, any Pentecostal church, any charismatic church, any Bible church, any non-denominational church, you would have heard you cooperate with God in your salvation. If you ask our evangelical brothers and sisters, they would say, of course, we're saved by grace through faith alone, not by works. And then they don't see the disconnect when they talk about themselves cooperating with God, having to choose Christ. Does that make sense? That kind of aspect is very much lost. Um, What it fails to do is it fails to recognize that God is at work at every step of the way. What they actually do, and here's the thing that I find so uh, disturbing ultimately about Arminianism, is that they might argue these first two points, that the Father elects, although they tend to have real problems with what election means. He looks down the tunnel of time, and he sees you choosing, and therefore you... So who's driving the train in election? We are. The Father is not sovereign. He doesn't sit there and say, I choose these people to be saved. I choose these people not to because I can, because I'm holy and I'm just and I know what to do. Rather, he looks down the tunnel in time and sees you choosing him, and therefore he chooses you. So you drive that train. The Son dies for you, but he also dies for everyone. And when he dies for everyone, then you have to choose whether you want to get a hold of it. So who's driving that train? You are. And the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see in just a moment, does he apply redemption? Well, he does, but only if you let him. So who's driving that train? You see where we're going with that, right? That's the real problem with Arminianism. Um, It wants to protect... Uh, aspects of what it means for us to be uh, made in the image of God with free will and so on, and in so doing, it actually shuts God out. It doesn't mean to do that, but it ends up doing that. And so Arminianism, uh, as we're going to unfold here in just a minute, basically looks at God and says, to be saved, you need God and what you do. And if you look at all the other systems that are out there, they fall into the same thing. Uh, you've, uh, you've, perhaps if you've been here for a while, you've heard me say that modern-day evangelicalism is, in terms of theology, exactly where the Roman Catholic Church was before the Reformation. What? We, they don't have popes? Sure they do. They have tons of little popes running all sorts of little, you know. So, and I can go on and on and on and on. But all throughout, you know, we look at Roman Catholicism and we say, well, it's all about and, Right? Right? You have faith and works. You have Christ and Mary. You have the Bible and tradition. You have the same thing in Arminianism. You have God and your cooperation, your free will. And you're right back to and. So it's one of those things that is a significant issue. If we look at uh, church history, all these have been answered at different times. Augustine Uh, answered Pelagius around A.D. 400 during the time of the Reformation. 1,100 years later, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, uh, John Knox, uh, um, all the guys of that time period, Um, thinking of uh, Bullinger and uh, Latimer in England and just on and on. They all had the view 
that God is the one who is completely behind every aspect of our salvation. But by the way, that does not mean that you're not choosing Christ. Because that's obviously put forward to you in Scripture. That's not what we mean. It doesn't mean that you don't do something. The question is whether your salvation depends upon what you do. And that's really the issue. So when you look at the historic teaching throughout the history of the church, it's always been taught basically, that God is the one who is fully responsible for our salvation. And that's what we want to be looking at here. Um, let me just read a couple of passages. Romans eleven thirty six, Paul says, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. And when we look at our catechism question, there was a couple of different passages on there. Uh, I talked about John 1 in the beginning. That's John 1, 12. But as many as received them, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So he gives us the power. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is involved in that process of applying the word to us. So let's take a moment then and look at the application of um, our salvation. Before we do that, any questions about this very brief historical overview? Does that all make sense? You know, normally you might say, well, it doesn't, it's not a good thing to stand here and bash uh, our evangelical brothers and sisters. And it's not so much that we're bashing them, but I think we do need to underscore that Arminianism, uh, oh, by the way, Arminianism has been called semi-Pelagianism. Remember, Pelagius thought you didn't need God at all. I mean, like nothing. You could, only some people needed him, but you could if you wanted to and you can, you know, do the right things. You were completely able to stand before God, righteous on your own. Obviously, if you talk to any good Baptist, good charismatic person, whatever, they're going to say, no, that's not the case. You need Jesus. But because it's Jesus and Arminianism has been called semi-Pelagianism. So you might hear that term at times uh, if you read things or hear things that are discussing this very important aspect of our faith. Semi-Pelagianism and Arminianism are the same thing. Now what I want to do is uh, there is a term that has been used in a long time and it's the only reason I'm going to use it because it's in Latin and I don't speak Latin and you probably don't speak Latin. So it usually is useless to discuss things in Latin because we don't speak it. But this is, again, you may be reading things and whatever, and I guess theologians feel like they need to use this kind of language. So the ordo salutis, which simply means the order of salvation. And when we look at the order of salvation, we're going to see what it is that the Holy Spirit is applying to us. Remember, Jesus accomplishes through his substitutionary life and death uh, our salvation, he had actually accomplishes it. Well, what does it mean that he, that the Holy Spirit then applies it? So we're going to look at that here. And if you've um, come through our new climbers class, you know that we discussed that there. So the first thing is our effectual calling. There's going to be a couple of sub points here. I don't know if I'm going to have room to put um, any kind of um, scripture, so I'm going to leave it there. So an effectual call is composed of two parts. 
an actual call and regeneration. I don't know if you guys can see this. I don't know if I'm writing too small, but otherwise I'm not going to fit all this up here. What this is essentially saying is you hear the call to come to Christ, right? And you hear that in preaching or in reading the word or however the case may be. And we've seen uh, maybe in your own life that happened and you don't respond. You don't respond positively. You're not ready to accept the gospel yet. But at some point you do. And what happens is regeneration. Regeneration is just a word for the new birth. You're born again. The Holy Spirit translates you and makes you into, or transforms you and makes you into a new creation, a new creature. Gives you new properties, give you, gives you new desires, new characteristics. And one of those is your ability to do that which is good and your ability to respond to the gospel and grab a hold of the gospel. So the, the effectual, you know, that word, if you're in medicine, you hear people talking about an efficacious treatment. Efficacy simply means it does what it intended to do. Something that is not efficacious in the end doesn't accomplish what it set out to do. But a medicine or something or a treatment plan that's efficacious accomplishes what it sets out to do. So, you know, you offer the call to people who are out there and some are unregenerated, some are not elect, or at least at this time God has not chosen to work in their heart. And they hear the call but they don't respond. But at some point, the Holy Spirit came into your life, regenerated, took out that heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh, and all the other language, you know, that we see in Scripture of the new birth. Jesus, of course, talking about it in John 3. And at that point, you are, in fact, enabled to respond. And so you do respond with conversion. You do make a choice for Christ. You now want to make a choice for Christ because you're a new creation with a new set of desires and inclinations and wants. And that's a two-parter as well. You, re- you respond with repentance and with faith. And repentance, you turn away from your former life and from your sin and from disobedience. And with faith, you turn to Christ and you grab a hold of him, trusting that he alone can save you. All right? Obviously, we can be saying a whole lot more about each of these, but we're not going to. I'm just going to go quickly through them. Now, again, I don't know if you can see this because we're starting to get pretty low here, but justification comes next. Justification, great doctrine that was recaptured during the Reformation, is God declaring you righteous. Once you trust in Christ and you say, I have nothing to offer, I need his merit, the Holy Spirit applies to you the righteousness of Christ. That merit which he accomplished for you 2,000 years ago is now applied to your account, reckoned to you as, uh, as we read in Genesis regarding Abraham, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. To be reckoned to him means that he did not actually have that righteousness, but God accounts as if he had it. And he does the same thing for us. And Paul makes that clear in Galatians chapter 4 where he says, that which happened with Abraham is what happens with us. So justification. After justification, oh, you know what? I'm going to stop for a moment. When I say after and after and after, we're not talking about time. We're talking about the logical order. There's a difference. This does not happen like over, you know, I gave my life to Jesus where I was converted, then 
20 minutes later or 20 years later, he justified me or something of that nature. It, it all happens at once. But we're talking about the logical order in which it goes. So the next thing is, anyone know? Adoption. God couldn't have you as his son or his daughter because you were a sinner, and God can have nothing to do with sin. But once you are justified and he counts you as righteous because your debt has been paid and you now have the righteousness of Christ, he sees you in the exact same way that he sees his son, then he adopts you into his family. Right? And the only elements that are, that are time-based are sanctification Sanctification, most of you are probably familiar with this term, uh, is the work of the Holy Spirit throughout your life to help you turn away increasingly from your sin, to help you grow in grace, become more like Christ in your nature. And there are several things I want to say that, again, that is the work of the Spirit, right? So all this has been the application of the Spirit. Sanctification has uh, an immediate effect and then the one that we think of. And so when we talk about sanctification, even though I'm not going to write it up there, we talk about definitive or definite sanctification, which is that when you become a believer, sanctification, the word itself comes from sanctus and Latin. It's the same word from which we get holy, which is from the Anglo-Saxon and uh, the Old English. But they mean the same thing, and it basically means being set apart. When we talk about God's saints, saints comes from sanctus, being set apart. Holy means being set apart. So when you are first saved, when this first happens, God takes you and sets you apart. You're no longer reckoned to be part of the world. You are now in the kingdom of Christ. You can see that very clearly in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, uh, where it talks about us being translated from the old sphere of death and sin and hell and the devil to the sphere, the kingdom of Christ, of grace of obedience, of life, and so on. So that's an immediate sanctification, and then the Holy Spirit continues working to actually make you what you were declared. God declares you righteous, but you're not actually righteous. You become righteous in the process of the Holy Spirit making you so, and that does not get perfected until your very last of these, and this is the end, glorification. You will die at some point, as we will all, unless the Lord comes, and then you will be raised. And when you are raised in your body, your perfect body, you will then have uh, a perfect mind and heart and uh, soul and will, and everything will be lined up, and your sanctification will be complete. You will be fully like Christ in terms of your moral character and so on. So all that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've been in our newcomers class, in fact, there's a newcomers class today. If you want to stick around and get a review, we'll go through that in a little bit more detail. But that is what we call the order of salvation, or as they like to say, the ordo salutis. Any questions about this? And then we'll keep, we'll keep going. Yes, take in. Yes, justification is a legal, and it's a very good point, and we're going to get into it when we look at, because the catechism now is going to go through each one of these, 
question by question. It's going to actually take each one of those points. But I'll say this about justification. It is a legal declaration, right? Uh, Think about it this way. It's a person, let's say a person actually commits a crime, and then the governor comes and pardons that person. Does not mean that the person really did not commit the crime, but the guilt of it is removed. And that's what happens here in justification. In Roman Catholicism, one of the things that the Reformers argued against was that in the medieval system, justification and sanctification got collapsed into one another. They got confused. And what I'm seeing today is in most evangelicalism, that's happening again. Just like I said, almost everything today is the same as it was during the medieval era. It just has a different outward manifestation, but at the core it's the same. In the Roman church, the way that you're saved is, remember, we've, we've drawn the little Pip-Boy. You guys remember the little Pip-Boy? Um, from Fallout, the game that my kids played. And I know that probably some of you played things like that. But, um, and he, he would show his health by a little line. And so, you know, if he was completely healthy, he'd be all the way to the top and whatever. But this is how Roman Catholicism looks at it, is that when you're saved, justification is that you are infused with righteousness. And they actually use that word, infused righteousness. Uh, you're like this little, you know, pastry, and then Jesus, the big baker chef, comes in and he infuses you with a level of righteousness. And that righteousness level will go up and down depending on your sin. And when you fail, it drops a little bit, and you go to the priest and you confess, and he makes you do things, penance. You know, you whip yourself in the back or walk up the steps of a cathedral on your knees. That's what they did in the medieval era, but there still are things that you're being asked to do today. Say 10 Hail Marys, give money to the poor, whatever, and this starts going up. And if it's maximized when you die, you go to heaven. If it's kind of down here, you go to purgatory to burn off what's left. If you are a saint, a saint for them is not all believers. A saint is a person who's maxed out and gone even further, and that extra amount is then put in a treasury, which the Pope can then give away to people. In the medieval era, he sold that extra. Uh, those were called works of supererogation. The Pope would sell that as indulgences. By the way, indulgences have not gone away. They're just not sold anymore. Uh, that was in the counter-reformation. I've actually held an indulgence from Pope Pius in my hand. It wasn't mine. He didn't issue it to me. But... Um, but it was, the funny thing is it's a collector's item and so it was being sold. <laughs> Although not being sold the way that we, you know, we're thinking. But that's it for justification. So any other questions about that? That was a good question. All right. What I want to do here is go back to what we were discussing a moment ago in terms of some of the distortions of this application and see how they play out. Because like, for example, in, have any of you been in modernist or what today we would just call mainline churches. I was for years in the PC, you know, USA as a kid and that kind of thing. Okay. So, you know, they'll talk about conversion, but that basically is still up to you. It's, it's turning a new leaf. Uh, your, your sanctification is just you keeping on keeping on, right? There's no discussion of sin, uh, or if sin is discussed, it's not the biblical definition of sin, um, and so on. And so there's no real righteousness that has been lost. You are inherently good. You just have to kind of... Uh, we watched a movie yesterday. I won't... I guess I can say the movie. Barbarian. First half of the movie, really good. Second half of the movie, 
And it turns out that's because the director saw a little screen, a, a, a short story for the first half of the movie, and he liked. And he said, "Oh, I have an idea here," and then he came up with the remainder of the. Yeah, but in the movie, one of the characters looks and says, "Maybe I am a bad person." Something along those lines. Maybe I am a bad person. No, more than likely, I'm just a good person who did something bad. And that's how most people tend to view themselves. That's how modernism tends to view people. So we see that in uh, the modern day, um, you know, liberal theologies. Most of us are not coming from that. If if I were still living in the Northeast, I'd spend a whole lot more time discussing that. I suspect most people here are coming out of the broad evangelical world and dealing with Arminianism. And the thing is that Arminianism also fails in many ways to give proper credence to the work of the Holy Spirit. And they'll say, oh, no, of course not. We see the Holy Spirit. But if you look at what we're talking about here, we see that in Arminianism, this is reversed. These two points are reversed. They believe in regeneration. They believe that the Holy Spirit gives you a new birth. But when does he give you the new birth? After you've accepted Christ. So, in Arminianism, you have the power within yourself when you first hear the gospel to determine whether it's right or wrong. In the biblical model, what does it say in Ephesians uh, 2.1? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In Arminianism, you were kind of sick and sneezing and coughing and hacking. So you saw that you needed something, but you had enough power. I mean, you know, R.C. Sproul used to put it this way, you know, that... that in Arminianism, you're the guy in the deathbed, and, and, and Jesus comes with the gospel medicine, and he puts it up to your lips, and all you have to do is open your mouth and take it, right? You're the guy who's in the water, and you're going down once, you're going down twice, you're going down three times. Jesus throws out the life preserver, and you are able to grab a hold of it, that kind of stuff. But R.C. was right to say that, no, it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You're not on your deathbed sick and, you know, taking the gospel medicine. You're dead and buried. You're not going down once or twice or three times in the water. You've been in Davy Jones' locker for a long time. I mean, you're just through dealing. And so here you are, bones, as Ezekiel 37 paints us, as bones who are just uh, in, in, uh, um, in the field, desiccated, you know, beyond any, any uh, way to uh, uh, redeem ourselves. And the Spirit comes and he gives you that new life. He regenerates you so that you are able to respond. And of course, we're not physically dead. But what it means to be spiritually dead is we no longer desire those things. We have a new nature, new nature after the fall. The old nature, which is what we refer to when Paul talks about taking off the old. Brandon was preaching in Colossians 3, take off the old self, put on the new self. That old self, that does not want the things of God. But when you are regenerated, then you're able to respond. But the Arminian flips those and says, you retain enough ability. Oh, who said that before? Pelagius. That's why it's called semi-Pelagianism, because Pelagius says you retain all uh, ability to save yourself, you don't need God. The Arminian says you retain enough ability to hear the gospel and on your own make that choice for him. And then when you make that choice, the Spirit regenerates you. My answer always to Arminians is, why do you need to be regenerated? You already chose Christ. Why not keep doing other things on your own? Why just jump straight to sanctification and have the Spirit just make you better and better. But you don't need regeneration. You obviously have enough there to get going. 
right? I don't know if this has happened to you. Uh, we had um, new plants put in in the front of our um, front of our house, and then this heat wave has come, and they've all kind of withered away. And I think one of them is like completely dead, but the other one is a little bit of green and a lot of brown. If that's you, if you're, you know, got that, all I got to do is water it and it's going to come back, right? So why do I even need regeneration in the Arminian system? Just have the watering of the sanct- of sanctification. That's all I need and the spirit will just keep working and I'll grow those brown, uh, grow out those brown shoots and the green will come in, right? You see the point? There's no real, no real need for it. The only reason they have it is because it's in scripture and they had to fit it somewhere in their system. But Arminianism is kind of funny is it actually denies the work of the Spirit. Or they might say it is the work of the Spirit, but let me put it this way. Actually, I'm going to, in my notes here, I'm going to read to you because we're just about out of time. G.I. Williamson, that great teacher and minister who just died at something like, what, 98 years of age? Anybody know? Something like that. Just died here in the last few months. But he says... Um, it is regarding Arminianism, he says, it is not the Holy Spirit who enables the sinner to repent and believe in Christ. It is rather the sinner who allows the Holy Spirit to regenerate his soul because he repents and believes. You see how that works? It is not the Holy Spirit who enables man to do what needs to be done. It is rather man who enables the Holy Spirit to do what needs to be done. Really kind of interesting. And if you look at a passage like uh, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Says Jesus, if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. How has that been interpreted in some of the evangelical churches that you've heard? Jesus is knocking. And in many cases, I've actually heard them say that it's not Jesus, but that the Holy Spirit comes knocking. And then you choose of your own volition and ability to open the door and let him in. So it's a very, very common uh, position. Um, so the reform view is not that at all. The biblical view is not that at all. It is that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You have no desire to do what is right. And it's not until, and you can hear the call and it's just going to bounce right off of you, right? Saul sat there and listened to Stephen give one of the best sermons that's ever been given. And he's like, yeah, we need to kill this guy, you know? So that just shows you what happens, that hardness of heart. But then that hard heart is removed when the Spirit finally works and regenerates you, and that's when you're able to respond, and the Spirit then continues on with all the steps. So, does that make sense? So I'm going to stop there. Obviously, we can elaborate a whole lot on that. But the whole point here is that it is vitally important. (laughs) I just find it funny that so many of the Pentecostal churches, they're all Arminian, who talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, deny the work of the Holy Spirit. And instead they focus on all the man-centered, oh, what gifts do you have? And everything that Paul says we're not supposed to be doing, which is to focus on who has the better gifts and who can all, that becomes the whole point of from, from them for the Holy Spirit, not this part of the work. But the key thing to take away here is to see how this is a continuation of what we've been seeing before. Christ accomplishes our redemption the Spirit applies that redemption. They are both equally involved in that process. The Father is the one who makes the covenant. The Father is the one who determines from the outset this plan of salvation. The Son executes it. 
and the Spirit brings it to you in, in uh, space and time, we might say. So questions about any of this? Very good question. Um, in short, I'll say two things. First of all, um, when Reformed people have looked at that passage evangelistically, uh, they'll say, well, it's not the Holy Spirit who's knocking, it's Jesus who's knocking. And the only reason you're able to open the door is because you are enabled by Jesus to open the door. But even then, I would say the problem there is the context. It is not an evangelistic passage at all. Uh, it's not a passage about here's unbelievers and Jesus is coming. It's, um, well, it's really all about uh, the church. And this is uh, in, in Revelation chapter 3, uh, chapters 2 and 3, uh, Jesus is speaking to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and all of those seven churches represent really all churches throughout time. They, there's aspects he highlights about their faithfulness or their unfaithfulness that really apply to all churches today, which is why we can continue to learn from it. And what he's basically saying to that church is, you've kicked me out, which is the ironic part. Jesus has been kicked out of his own church. He's not talking about knocking to the doors of your heart. He's asking, you think you might let me back into my own church? Whose church really is this? That's really more of what it... Now, you could argue, for them to be able to do that, they themselves have to embrace Christ personally. But the context of it, I think the proper interpretation, if we actually read through the whole passage in Revelation, is he's basically telling that church, you are so far gone, you're pursuing your own ends and all that other stuff... I'm not even there. And you're talking and using my name and everything. It's one of the ones that most applies, I think, today to mainline churches. You know, if I were to go to some of the churches that I, when we were, we were a kid, PCUSA, we also attended for a few years Methodist churches that have completely gone off the rails. That's what you see. They're talking about Jesus as they welcome, you know, trans this. I just, you know, you've probably seen the videos Guy coming out saying, God is trans, God is gay, all this other stuff, you know. And here's Jesus saying, can I please come back into my church? Because they're no longer um, churches. They would be what, you know, Scripture calls synagogues of Satan, even. That's what they've turned into. So I think that's more the proper interpretation than a, um, an evangelistic one. And I know we've used it so often that at first that sounds shocking. Oh, you don't believe in evangelism or something, you know, if you say that to people. I don't believe that that's what that passage is talking about, if that makes sense. So, anything else? Okay, good. Well, we're just a little past time. Um, so next week, we'll continue with the next question, which will begin to go down the Ordo Salutis and unpack that for us. Uh, I think there's a lot of good stuff to learn. By the way, uh, and I appreciate you all being here on time, we do start at 9.15 so that we can get our stuff in. So... Um, it seems like that's the perennial challenge that we have is getting everybody in their seats. So thank you for working hard to do that this morning. All right, let's, uh, let's pray and uh, we'll get ready for worship. Father in heaven, we thank you that our salvation does not depend even one drop, one percent, one, one thousand billionth of a percent on us. We're thankful that you, the Son, and the Spirit, before the foundation of the world, covenanted to bring together uh, this plan of salvation. We're so thankful that you chose us because there's nothing in us 
that is worthy of your choice. We're thankful, Father, that the the Son did those things which we're incapable of doing, uh, living that perfect life and dying in our place. And we're thankful, Father, that the Holy Spirit in due time has come and applied that redemption to us and is continuing to work in us to conform us to the image of your Son. We're thankful, Father, that it is all because of your initiative and your doing from beginning to end. Uh, We will see that so clearly on the last day. Uh, And so, Father, uh, we are thankful we can begin to see it even now. And because of that, we give you all praise and all glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, who alone makes it possible. Amen.